Good evening, everybody. Nice to see you all. I'm going to uh, talk about <clears throat> Vasubandhu tonight, of course, but before I do that, I would like to uh, ask your indulgence. I take a few minutes to uh, pay tribute to my first spiritual teacher. Uh, even those of you who know me a long, long time probably don't know about my first teacher, uh, Rabbi Gabriel Meza. And I, and I pay tribute to him tonight because I just found out the other day that he, that he passed away um, almost a month ago at the age of 99. So I'd like to just remember him with you tonight. He was uh, a wonderful person, a very profound thinker. He came from a long lineage of rabbis, going back many, many generations. Every, every man, you know, those were the days when rabbis were only men. Many, many generations, all were rabbis. And he was a rabbi, as well as his three brothers were also all rabbis. One of his brothers was Jackie Mason, uh, the, the Jewish comedian, who actually was a rabbi and, and served as a rabbi for two or three years until his father died, at which point he became a comedian. <laughs> but I think if his father had lived for another 20 years, Jackie would have been a rabbi for 20 more years. So when Rabbi Meza came to our small congregation in Pittston, Pennsylvania, he was a pretty young guy. He was really lively, although he always dressed in a dark suit and tie with a hat, as men in those days wore. I'm pretty sure that we were his first congregation. And I was... Uh, maybe about 10 or 11 at the time, and I was at the age of beginning to prepare for my bar mitzvah. So he helped me do that. And, and this was something that uh, we spent years on, literally several years. In addition to the short section of the prophets, that is the usual task for a bar mitzvah, Rabbi Meza also taught me to sing the entire uh, a section of the Torah that was to be read on that Shabbat in Hebrew, as well as to lead uh, all the services uh, for that morning, a, a procedure that took about three hours. Besides all that, believe it or not, we would engage in serious conversation. I was I was like a kid, you know, but we would we read Freud. I remember very well reading Moses and Monotheism with Rabbi Meza. And we also read uh, all kinds of philosophical uh, texts, non-Jewish non philosophical texts. And we had many, many discussions about all of this during those years. And as you can imagine, uh, under Rabbi Meza's influence, I was a very religious boy. I went to synagogue every single morning before school, 
And many times I would lead the prayer services, which were of course entirely in Hebrew. And these services were attended by a small group of old men, many of whom were born in Europe and spoke with <clears throat> heavy accents. And I was like 14 or something like that leading, <clears throat> leading the services, which I really loved. And I still love it now. Once in a while, I go to Jewish prayer services, and I, it's very thrilling to me. <clears throat> this phase of my life, though, didn't last too long. It was very intense, but it didn't last very long. I don't know how long exactly. But by the time I was in my uh, high school years, right, you know, 10, 11, 12th grade, uh, right around that same time, Rabbi Meza left for a larger congregation in, in Long Island, where he remained for the rest of his life. And around that same time, I realized that there were girls and there was sports. And so uh, that's what took up pretty much all my time and interest in those uh, years of high school. Rabbi Meza had an amazing and restless intelligence. He was all the time uh, questioning everything in the most lively and interested way. Somehow or other, that spirit of questioning and wondering about everything did not seem in, in any way in opposition to his tremendous faith in Judaism and his absolutely strict adherence to all the details of Jewish observance, which are considerable. And he kept this up all the way until the end of his life. And now that I think of it, you know, it really, it wasn't until I, I was thinking of sharing this with you tonight that I realized that was probably the contrast that I experienced as a boy between Rabbi Meza's lively and open curiosity, the contrast between that and the more or less boring and small-minded life of our little community that was very provincial and nobody was interested in much, it seemed like. It was the contrast between him, the way he was and the way the community was, that must have given me the idea from an early age that the religious life was something really interesting and challenging, far more so than ordinary life, which was bound to be conformist and materialistic. And I still feel like that. It is very odd because almost everybody thinks of, you know, religious life as being stifling, restrictive, you know, narrow-minded. But to me, the ordinary life of desire and identity protection is what's stifling and restrictive. I mean, what could be more restrictive than having to be somebody and do something in the world, you know, and then sort of be stuck in that little box? I mean, what, what could be more restrictive than that? On the other hand, being involved in an endless open-ended quest to understand life and to live life based on this understanding, I still think is the most interesting thing that a person could ever do. And not only that,
doesn't require that you be wealthy or intelligent or talented or young and strong to do this. Anybody can do it. What could be better? Rabbi Meza showed me this. He didn't explain it to me or tell me about it. He just was that. And, and somehow or other, I think I got the message uh, in, 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 the, in the interstices of my soul. He also, like his brother, had this, a tremendous sense of humor. And uh, his sermons were often full of jokes. And he loved his own jokes. And they made him laugh. He had a tremendously joyful laugh. And I remember when he would laugh, his eyes would like, you know, get swallowed up uh, by his face. He'd wrinkle his eyes until they disappeared. And, and, and his face would open up in all directions. And then in the next minute, he'd be talking very seriously about God. He often gave his sermons about God. What was God? And I remember very vividly how this made everybody in the pews feel very uncomfortable because they did not know what he was talking about, but somehow or other they sensed that there was something scandalous about what he was saying. And uh, we remained actually in close touch for, for many years. I often spent uh, parts of my vacations from college at his house in Long Island. And Kathy, when I was telling her, talking about Rabbi Meza with her, she reminded me I had forgotten that soon after we were married, we went to visit uh, Rabbi Meza and his wife Edith at, at their home in Long Island. And after I moved uh, west to California and ordained as a Zen priest, he once came uh, to visit at Green Gulch. And I remember he attended a Dharma talk one Sunday, and I think he was impressed with it. His leaving the Zendo that Sunday morning is somehow very vivid in my mind. In those days, we would leave the Zendo uh, two by two. We would bow to each other at the foot of the stairs and then walk up the stairs to the doorway. And I remember him dressed up in his suit and tie with his yarmulke on and with awkward body language and a quizzical look on his face, almost, but not quite, performing this probably non-kosher gesture of bowing to the person across, across the way. Another thing that I remember is him telling me once how thrilling it was when he was a little boy and he would go to the synagogue every Shabbat and hear the Torah read. And it was like the most exciting thing that he, that he ever could imagine. What was going to happen next, you know, in the story? And he was on the edge of his seat, even though he had heard it a million times before. And he probably, even as a boy, almost knew it by heart. He was just so excited to see what was going to happen next. So Rabbi Meza really was a wonderful person, embodied wisdom and love. He, he was that, you know, he was, he was that through and through. 
And, and now, like I say, I, I didn't realize until I was thinking about him just lately how much my life has been shaped from beginning to end by my knowing him. And even though we haven't seen each other in person for a long time, although uh, in the last year or so we did Zoom together, I will really, really miss him. He was a one of a kind. And I wanted to share all of that with you because you're my, you're my good friends and you know me well. And I wanted to tell you about that. And, and I appreciate the chance to do so. I wrote it all down and sent a copy of it to Edith. I talked to Edith on the phone a long time the other day. And today uh, I sent her a copy of these words. I also sent her a link. So I doubt she's, she's here, but maybe she is. I don't know. I'm looking to see if Edith Mesa is here. But I don't see her. Anyway, so let's get back to work. Let's get serious. <laughs> Vasubandhu. Uh, so last week from my little uh, basement uh, in New York, in Brooklyn, uh, I talked to you about verses 31, 32, and 33. <clears throat> and as I said, I, I, didn't, I didn't know I was going to be doing that from Brooklyn, so I didn't bring Ben's book with me. So I was now catching up, you know, reading Ben's commentaries to those verses. And I noticed that uh, he translates uh, non-perception, which is a phrase that appears in verse 32, as groundless perception. And, and I think that is really good, a really good way to translate it, instead of non-perception groundless perception, because uh, Vasubandhu is talking about a kind of perception, not the usual kind. The usual kind of perception is not groundless. It's grounded in the concept of an object of perception out there and a perceiving consciousness over here. That grounds perception. The groundless perception would be an experience of perception in which there's just the arising perception. Nothing that is perceived and no one who is perceiving. And, and this sounds fancy, but actually, I think that we know about this. I think we sometimes have this kind of perception. It usually feels really wonderful when we do. When we so completely give ourselves over, sometimes we don't intend this, but it just surprisingly happens. When we give ourselves over so completely to our moment of perception, that there's nothing left over. There's just the tree, just the sound of the bird. And as you know, this kind of perception is constantly referred to in Zen literature, in which it's more or less conflated with 
the experience of awakening because it is in a way exactly the awakening experience that Vasubandhu is talking about in, in this text. It is really complete realized nature. It's the thusness of phenomena. And artists know about this. That's why artists are so obsessed with their art, because it's such a wonderful experience to be lost in your painting or your poem or your dance, to be relieved for a little while of yourself in the procedure of making art to disappear into what you're doing. Everybody who does something that absorbs them fully knows this feeling. And in Zen practice, all experience is understood as that kind of experience. We disappear into every perception, feeling, sensation, every thought. And when we disappear, the object also disappears. It's no longer something out there. It's just what is. It's just what's going on. It isn't anything. It's just being here. And it's exactly like the verse I quoted uh, last time, I think, from uh, the Diamond Sutra, the, the verse that the, the Sutra says the sixth ancestor heard. This is from the Sutra. Give rise to an unsupported thought, or we could say an ungrounded thought, a groundless thought without any basis. Or it could be not a thought, but a perception, a sensation, whatever, a groundless thought, ungrounded by sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, or mind. That is just the perception, all absorbing, that in the moment fully liberates you. So this is a wonderful thing. And we really appreciate it. Uh, I think that actually, as we practice, we experience it more often, maybe quite a bit. But because we experience it so often, it's not such a striking and surprising thing. And, and when we experience it, we, we're not making a big deal out of it. And we're not looking. That's, our practice is not about looking and trying to produce those moments. What we're doing in practice is simply going on with whatever the experience is, moment after moment. Because we understand the three natures that Vasubandhu is speaking of here simultaneously, so that we appreciate that any kind of perception or feeling, regardless of how exalted or not exalted it feels, is always ungrounded is always the way however much it strike however it strikes us so on page 196 of ben's book he comments on this verse and, and i'm quoting now from ben this verse holds forth the possibility that we can be completely liberated from suffering by realizing that we are inseparable from it this verse holds forth the possibility that we can be completely real, liberated from suffering by realizing that we are inseparable from it. 
it may help to think of compassion as more of a space than a feeling. And we can develop this space. And then he talks about different practices. But basically, that's what Zazen is doing in our lives. Zazen is a way of developing a kind of space. Not anything, you know, but a space in our lives. And with that space, it's possible to be a healing space for another person who is overwhelmed. You can be with their tears, silences, or shouting, or sit with people who are holding it all in, or hold space in our hearts for those who have caused terrible harm. It is possible for our bodies to move in a way that cares for our communities as easily as a hand reaches to adjust the pillow in the night. And that's all, more or less, what Ben writes. Now remember, I think part of the point of this text, we are, um, Visnapti Matrata teaching is, is Mahayana teaching, it's teaching for Bodhisattvas. So part of what we really have to learn in order to be Bodhisattvas is how to endure suffering and how to help beings in their suffering. And, and to do that, we have to appreciate the groundless experience of suffering, which means that we don't see a sufferer over there, and we don't see suffering, but as Ben says, we are capable of completely becoming the suffering. And when we're able to do that, then we can help to hold the suffering as he says in his text, in a, in a different way. And we can really be of service to people. So as he says, compassion maybe is more of a space than a feeling. It's, it's more of a sense of spaciousness that holds the suffering than it is an emotional feeling, although the emotional feeling can be there too. Maybe sometimes in our compassion we don't have the feeling, but we can even so have that openness and that spaciousness to suffering. And we can let the suffering in fully, exactly because we know it's groundless, because we know we are not separate from it. And because we're not separate from it, we know there's nothing to be afraid of in it. If I'm suffering, it's okay. I am here. In, my, in, in this moment, this is my groundless experience of being alive. I don't need to flinch. I don't need to run away. And when we can experience suffering in that way, our own suffering or anybody else's suffering, then we can really be a big help. We can say to people and really mean it and really feel it. Okay, yes, this is really hard. And it's really painful. This is suffering. It's not your fault. It is endurable. It's part of life. You can do it. Bad as it might be. You can do it. You probably noticed the last phrase of Ben's uh, commentary that I just read for you. 
where he references the famous dialogue of Dawu and Yunyan that we always talk about. Why does the Bodhisattva of Compassion have so many hands and eyes? And Dawu says, it's like reaching back for your pillow in the night. In other words, compassion doesn't necessarily require a lot of emotional capacity or a lot of skill to fix things, give good advice. Compassion is just something natural and normal, something we all know how to do. Just to be there with one another, to really be there in identity, in sympathy. In the same commentary, to the same verse, Ben uh, provides us with a, with a uh, version of the story of Nanchuan and Zhaozhou, the everyday mind story, which is how we get the name of our community. Everyday Zen comes from this story. Sometimes they, Ben translates ordinary mind, but it's the same. It's the same word, ordinary mind or everyday mind. And uh, we're starting practice period pretty soon. And when we end practice period with our Shuso Hosen Shiki ceremony, we always read this story to begin the ceremony. And, and I'll, I, I, was, I was appreciated Ben's version of the story, which the wording is slightly different from ours. And maybe it's better. So I'm, I'm just going to read you his version of the little story of Nanchuan and Zhaozhou. Zhaozhou uh, asks Nanchuan, what is the way? And Nanchuan answers, everyday mind is the way, or ordinary mind is the way. Zhaozhou says, should I turn toward it or not? And Nanchuan says, if you turn toward it, you'll be turning away from it. Jaja says, well, how can I know the way if I don't turn toward it? Nanchuan answers, the way is not about knowing or not knowing. When you know something, you're deluded. And when you don't know, you're just empty-headed. When you reach the way beyond doubt, it is as vast as infinite space. And you can't say it's right or wrong. And with these words, Zhaozhou had sudden understanding. This is a very practical story. It reminds me of the practice of not knowing, which you can see easily goes along with groundless perception. It's quite sensible, really. Things just happen, one after the other. We do our best to deal with them. But when we appreciate the three natures that Vasubandhu is teaching us here, we know that we can never really know exactly what's going on. Things are always beyond our knowing and not knowing. So if it should turn out, as it often does, that we are completely mistaken and things go utterly 
other than the way we expected or desired for them to go, we are not surprised. Ah, it's this way, not the way I thought it would be. Okay, this way. And we keep on practicing, even though in a way we don't exactly turn toward practice because in turning toward practice, that would mean that we have a concept of practice. We know what practice is. And practice is not our concept of it. Because practice is just life. And life is what it is. It is not our concept of what it is. Of course, we have lots of concepts. Good thing. We're human. We're supposed to have lots of concepts. But life is not our concept. So we're already always ready to go in whatever direction life will bring us. Because life is vast as space and just as open and as surprising and as mysterious. I got a little confused because the next verses are reversed. Um, ben and Jay reversed the orders of verses 33 and 34, I discovered. Possibly they're working on different versions of the text, or maybe there was some mistake in the printing, I don't know. So last week I brought up verse 33 in Jay's version, which in Ben's version is verse 34 and vice versa. So this is Ben's verse 33, which is the next verse, uh, if, if this makes any sense to you. Anyway, I think you get the idea. Point is, here's verse 34 in Ben's translation. Through not perceiving duality, the non-dual form vanishes through vanishing, the realized non-duality is attained. Somehow, in Jay's version, he brings in, the, the, he has Vasubandhu bringing in directly the analogy of the elephant. In Ben's version, the elephant doesn't appear at this point in the text. So I'm guessing they're working from two different, I, that probably Jay is working from a Tibetan translation and I know that uh, Ben is working from uh, the Sanskrit text. So the texts are probably a little different. Anyway, what I just read you is Ben's version of verse 34, which is Jay's verse 33. In his version, instead of saying non-duality is attained, the realized non-duality is attained, Jay says, the realized non-duality arises. Non-dual awareness arises. He uses the word arises rather than is attained. So this verse seems very simple and very true to the experience. I probably I've used this analogy many times before, but it's really just like 
um, having a bad dream. Maybe you have a dream where you forgot your homework or the dog ate your homework, you know, like they say. In, in our kid's house, they got a new dog and the dog eats everything. So you had to guard your shoes and stuff and the dog didn't eat the kid's homework, but if they left it around, the dog would definitely eat their homework. So you have a dream, you know, like you're freaked out because you're going to school and the dog ate your homework. Or maybe it's really a dark dream and you're some wandering down these dark passageways and um, scary figures are following you with big knives and stuff like that because you saw before you went to bed a Netflix show, you know, like that. Anyway, you're having a bad dream. It's a scary dream. And in the dream, there's this terrible, heavy feeling. You're really panicked. And then you wake up. Ah! And it all disappears. Like, suddenly. When you realize, that was all a dream. There's nobody following me. The dog didn't eat my homework. I have my homework in my backpack. It's fine. So, that's what this verse is about. It's about how the same thing is there, you know, you still had the dream, right? You remember the dream, and the events of the dream are still there, but instead of them feeling like very scary, it's just like, ah, it was a dream. Life, life's heaviness, the tremendous burden, right, of being you is suddenly lifted from you. It just vanishes, just like that. That's why I like the phrase, it arises, rather than it's attained. Because it doesn't, you don't attain it, you don't make it happen, it just, it just happens. All of a sudden, or little by little, the burden is lifted. And you realize that you were carrying around a big, heavy burden that you really did not need to be carrying around because there was no burden there at all. It was just kind of a conceptual error. It was just a very long, bad habit that you could just sort of like forget about. It's gone. You never have to have that problem again. Look, all you have to do is live. Of course, living has its challenges. If there's going to be a body and a mind, then it's 100% guaranteed that there will be illness, pain, disturbing thoughts of all sorts, all of which goes with the great privilege of being alive. So you can be grateful for all those things. Wow, you know, if I was dead, I wouldn't have these problems. I'd rather have these problems. And so you handle it. You deal with it the best you can. And you get help. Because there's always help. If you look around hard enough and open up your eyes, you'll see there's always help. Some kind of help always appears. And then sometimes it turns out that the challenges and the difficult things were actually big advantages for you. Let difficulties become advantages, they very often will. So really and truly, there's nothing to be afraid of, and there's nothing to resist, and then nothing to worry about. So here's the next verse. 
here, there's a very different take from our two uh, commentators. This is Jay's uh, version of the verse. Through perceiving correctly, through seeing the non-referentiality of mental states, through following the three wisdoms, one will effortlessly attain liberation. Pretty straightforward. And Jay's commentaries are always very short. And in his short commentary to this one, he says, you know, when you really understand these teachings, you will understand that there is nothing, never was anything, to be grasped or to fear. And when you know that, just like I said a minute ago, you wake up from the bad dream and you're liberated. Because you know your mental states are just mental states. They don't refer to something outside of themselves. That's what Vijnapi Matrata is all about. And that's why any mental state is workable. Jay doesn't explain the three wisdoms referenced in the verse, but I assume that they must be the wisdom that has to do with each of the three natures. To be wise about the three natures is the three wisdoms, I'm guessing. He doesn't say Ben's translation is very different, which gives me the idea that he must be working from a different text, as I mentioned a moment ago. Here's what Ben translates. By these reasons, and now these are the reasons, minds cause contrary views, minds see unreal things, accordance with the three knowledges, and effortless attainment of liberation. It's a little confusing. Frankly, I don't, I, there's a, some kind of, this is not a sentence, a sentence even, you know, so I'm not sure exactly how he comes to that translation, but he explains a lot in his commentary. So I'm kind of following along with his explanation. So Ben, in this case, gets his explanation from referring to the Mahayana Sangraha, which he's mentioned before, it's a classic, big, fat text that is like a philosophical explanation of the mind-only schools, which was written by another great mind-only sage, Asanga, who was said to be Vasubandhu's half-brother. So it looks like Jade never mentions this text, and maybe he didn't consult it. But Ben does, and according to Ben, who's you know using that text, this verse refers specifically to four proofs of the mind-only school. In other words, four proofs that there is nothing but consciousness. There are four proofs, apparently. Vasubandhu doesn't mention them, except here he alludes to them, according to Ben. That's not what Jay thinks, but Ben thinks that Vasubandhu is alluding to these four proofs. So I'll, I'll go through these four proofs as Ben explains them, because they're kind of interesting. How do we know that there's nothing but mind? These are the four proofs. This is how we know. The first proof is minds cause contrary views, which we know, right? Every mind sees something different. 
you know, like if I asked everybody to say, what, what did they hear in my Dharma talk tonight? Everybody will have a different, I'm used to this, right? In fact, oftentimes people tell me the things that they heard in my Dharma talks that I never said. That's the, that's the best. They learned all this great stuff and I never, I never said it. Because minds cause contrary views. Minds see different things. Every mind sees something different. We, we know this, right? So we all think there's a world, but if we think about it a little longer, we realize, no, there's not a world. There's an infinite number of worlds. There's as many worlds as there are creatures. Everybody has their own world, conditioned by their own stuff. Everybody knows that what you see and what the other guy sees is different. The only thing remarkable is that we continue to believe that there's one world. And then we're communicating about this one world, supposedly. And since we're using the same words and ideas and meaning totally different things by them, it's no wonder we're having trouble understanding one another. And it's no wonder at all that we're fighting so much. Because we are fighting over a world that doesn't exist. And each one of us thinks we know what that world is. And if that's true for people, how much more so for other kinds of creatures? In other words, if people, if each person has a different world, how much does a different kind of a creature have a different world? My house, which I'm convinced is mine, is not mine, or even a house to the ant crawling across the railing of my, uh, the, the rim of my bathtub. So which is real? The ant world or the human world? Or the crocodile world? Or the bird world? All different worlds. Which one is the real world? Well, it must be that all the worlds are real, which is the same thing as saying that all the worlds are unreal. So that's the first proof. We know that everything is mind. Second proof is that we see things that are not real. And if we can actually, with our eyes, seem to see things, that are not real, conventionally, how do we know that our conventional way of seeing things is real? Maybe it's also unreal. This is a big thing, actually, for people my age, who long ago took psychedelic drugs and saw with their own eyes a completely different world from the world that they had previously seen, which then made them wonder whether the world that they had previously seen was real or not, or how real was it? And you don't have to take psychedelic drugs, you could just go to Sashin sometime. And after the third or fourth day, you're gonna see a different world from the world that you saw on the first day. 
It's an unbelievable, you know, ugly people become beautiful. How did that happen? Things that you didn't see before, suddenly you see. Things about your life and about life in general that you never saw before, you suddenly see. Plus, you can have all sorts of hallucinations and misapprehensions. If you have a lot of, or once in a while have, what we call a mental illness, you can hear voices, you can see visions, they're there. People see ghosts. They see their deceased grandparents. They see creatures from other planets. They see them. So how do we know that the normal way of seeing things is the real way? So this is the second proof that things are mind-generated and not objective realities. The fact that we can experience all kinds of unreal things that have no physical basis. The third proof is a proof that is particular to Buddhist thinkers who assume sort of just like, uh, you know, like um, Jews and Christians assume that the Bible is true. So if they quote the Bible, that proves it. Well, similarly, the Buddhist thinkers believe that the experiences of great meditators are real and are a standard for reality. And highly developed meditators, we learn from Buddhist texts, might have all kinds of unusual perceptions. They might experience flying around the room or in space. They might be able to see through walls. And specifically, Yogacara practitioners see things as Vijnapti Matrata, see things as concept only, meaning they see that things are not actually there as they appear to be. They see that what they are seeing is a mere representation of things, an idea of things, a mental construct. They see that the world is not solid or fixed, but is in fact an ever unfolding event without center or edges. And here's where the next proof, the fourth proof is where Ben's interpretation is really different from Jay's. The text does seem to say, both agree, that because things are concept only or representation only or mind only, liberation must be effortless and immediate, just like the dream that you wake up from. So I suppose the idea here is and remember, this is a proof that everything is mind only. The idea is that if things really existed, right, if, they, if it really was the world we think it is, then liberation would be a very heavy lift, right? It would take a really long time to turn around all these very heavy things and become liberated from them. But if things don't really exist and they're just concept only, then liberation is a snap. It's effortless. So if, if that's true, then the text is saying very clearly, yes, liberation is effortless and instant, and that proves, since that's so, that proves that things are only mind. 
that's clearly what the text says. But Ben says, well, yes, it says that, but it doesn't mean that. He says, it means that liberation actually takes a lot of effort and a lot of work and struggle. So here we take a step back and we can recognize that a text like this has lots of different interpretations. So far, we've been not emphasizing that. We've been talking about the text as if it has one interpretation and we could figure out what it means. But of course, it may mean a lot of different things to different people. And there surely are, I mean, here we have Ben and Jay disagreeing, and they're following different interpretations. But throughout Buddhist history, this text is old, right? There have been many different interpretations and many arguments and disputes about what is Vasubandhu really saying. So we don't really know, actually, you know, what precisely Vasubandhu is saying. We're, we're talking as if we are getting something out of it, but we don't really know what he's saying. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Of course it's like that. The teaching itself is a mere representation, subject to many views, just like everything else in reality. This is something you can imagine I've thought about a lot over the decades, especially since we are in a particular uh, situation, as many Buddhist practitioners in the past were not in, of studying the teachings without benefit of knowing the language in which they are written. I used to spend a certain amount of time comparing many different English translations of a text. And when you do that, you know, you see a lot of differences. Every translation is, of course, a different interpretation. But I don't do that anymore. Maybe I'm just gotten lazy, you know. I don't, I don't do that anymore because I'm standing, I'm taking five steps back, you know, and I'm standing back from the text. And when you stand further back, you can see a basic teaching that seems true enough anyway and helpful. And you kind of can see that through the haze of the various interpretations. And in this particular case, I'm sure that both interpretations are exactly right, because this is our experience. Practice is absolutely effortless. And at the same time, it takes a lot of effort. And that's the joke, right? You discover the effortlessness by making a big effort. You pull and haul and you pull and haul, and then one day it dawns on you, all that pulling and hauling was for absolutely nothing. <laughs> it was so obvious from the beginning, you know, there's nothing to it. Why did I do all of that pulling and hauling? And, but, but if somebody told you that in the beginning, you would say, no, 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 that can't be right. So this is kind of a joke, but it's more than a joke. It's very important that we understand it like that. Because the alternative understanding that we have achieved spiritual heights, that we are wise as others are not, 
due to our long and arduous and noble spiritual effort. This is not a good way to look at it. Because if we look at it that way, we're going to feel different and superior to all the poor others who have not made the effort that we have made and who have not had the advantage of seeing the truth the way we have seen it. But that is not so. It really is not so. If you really appreciate what Vasubandhu is saying here about the three natures, it's clear that that cannot be so. To realize things as they are is something that everyone does all the time. To do that and continue to suffer is incredible, it's noble, it's beautiful. Whereas to do that and not suffer is so much easier and therefore less noble and less beautiful. In other words, practice is the easy way out. It is. Not to practice is much more difficult. And this is why bodhisattvas are in absolute awe of suffering sentient beings and accord them the highest honor because they understand the same as the bodhisattva, but they continue to suffer in this world. What a wonderful teaching this is, don't you think? It's so uh, subtle and obvious at the same time. So I have a question for you. It's actually not a question, it's a phrase or a sentence. And I'm gonna give you this short phrase or sentence and, and then in your groups, you can tell me, tell one another, what you think of this, how you, what this phrase means to you, or how you, maybe you think it's crazy, or you agree with it, or don't agree with it, or how do you feel about it? How do you practice with it? How do you live with it? And here's the phrase. Are you ready? Suffering is conceptual. Suffering is conceptual. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that's the truth or the final truth, I'm just, it's just a phrase that comes from Vasubandhu's text. So what do you, what does that make you feel? What does that, what does that do in you? So Ben, you're, you're an expert on the groups, you know how to do the groups, groups of three. And I think we have, uh, I guess I went on longer than expected because of my long speech about Rabbi Mazes, so. We have a little less time than usual. So let's everybody, since it's, it's that this kind of a question actually should have a brief answer. So maybe everybody takes two minutes. So about 10 minutes for the whole thing. We'll come back 10 minutes and maybe a couple minutes to get in and out of the groups. So maybe 12 minutes in all, and then we'll come back and see what happened. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it.
and I'll see you in about 12 minutes.